politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast, the only independent conservative talk show host out there. That's the truth. Everyone else is bought into a cult in this era, but we are truly the only independent show focusing on you, the taxpayer, you, the non-illegal alien, non-criminal citizen. You might not matter to anyone else among the political elites, but you certainly matter here. And we're trying to look to see how to build a civil society, a security apparatus, sovereignty, and a system of government that is built around the law-abiding American citizen as laid out in the Declaration of Independence. Now, yesterday we had... Veterans Day, where we salute, send tribute to those really less than 1% of Americans that shoulder the entire burden of military service in this country. And I got to thinking yesterday, and I'm sorry I didn't warn you we were off. I actually forgot that our DC office was off on Monday, even though I was pretty much working almost full time, but we didn't have a show. So we're a little bit behind. But I was thinking, you know, do we even have an America left that makes their sacrifice worthwhile? What are we fighting for abroad if we no longer have a constitutional republic here at home? And then I remembered almost 100 years ago, a great man, President Calvin Coolidge, made that very point. I've quoted this before, but, um, and this was Calvin's speech in 1927 on Memorial Day, then called Decoration Day. And he applied it to the dead, but it certainly applies to the living, those who uh, volunteer to defend this nation. And he made the point that, um, let's just, just read the first part, uh, reverence for the dead should not be divorced from respect for the living. If we hold those who have gone before in high estimation, it will reflected in our conduct towards those who are still with us. It would be idle to place a wreath on the grave of the dead and leave ungarlanded the brow of the living. By the way, I'm I'm sorry if you're going to hear me sniffle and nasal today uh, with the weather going back and forth. I have a terrible cold, but it's either that or no show today. So (laughs) those of you who are fans of the show will just have to put up with my sniffling. But anyway, he continues, our devotion to the memory of those who have served their country in the past is but a symbol of our devotion to those who are serving their country at present. So first off, we make this point all the time when we salute the military that we owe it to those currently serving to have a clear mission, to have a defined understanding of what is our national interests, what's at stake overseas, and to properly define them, properly um, equip them with the right tools to achieve that mission and no holds barred rules of engagement placing their lives before others in order to achieve that. And if we're too squeamish about civilian casualties, then we shouldn't be there. But that's besides the point. I want to move on to the next point that Coolidge made, two important points that are relevant to the time we live in. The integrity of the union rests on the Constitution. Unless that great instrument is to be the supreme law of the land, we could have no union worthy of our consideration. 
And he goes on to explain the genius of the Constitution with its three independent departments, the executive, legislative, and judicial established a Republican form of government incomparable in the guarantees of order and liberty with which it has endowed the American people. As a charter of freedom and self-government, it is unsurpassed by any political document which ever guided the destinies of the people. <laughs> and then he made another point. We, we have made our place in the world through the Union and the Constitution. We have flourished as a people because of our success in establishing self-government. But all of these results are predicated upon a law-abiding people. It, if our country should be given over to the violence and crime, it would be necessary to diminish the bounds of our freedom to secure order and self-preservation. In whatever direction we may go, we are always confronted with the inescapable conclusion that unless we observe the law, we cannot be free. So there's two important principles he laid out there, and he said this on Memorial Day. It's only worthwhile to sacrifice to defend our prerogatives abroad if we have a system of government that's worth protecting. So we have three separate independent branches, not one branch of government, the federal judiciary, the lower courts, the Supreme Court. No, no, three independent branches of government, each one relegated to its proper role. And then number two, we need a civil society that is law abiding and we can have what he called crime and violence. I'm here to tell you today that we have the opposite of a constitutional republic. Today we have the Supreme Court being accorded the sole and final status of determining an issue that should never be in front of them, whether illegal aliens have the right to amnesty because Obama illegally gave it to them, and a lower court is saying, several lower courts, district and appellate judges are saying that President Trump cannot merely rescind the most unlawful act ever done by a president. And then, of course, we have the crime and violence spreading in our cities, the proliferation of anarchy, the breakdown of social norms and public order in San Francisco and so many of these places. If we have time to, I'll get to. But I want to focus first on the first element of Coolidge's prerequisite, that the sacrifices have to be predicated upon a proper system of government here at home that we no longer have. As we're recording here, the Supreme Court is hearing <coughs> oral arguments on DACA. Now, to me, the fact that the Supreme Court is even hearing this case <coughs> demonstrates we've already lost. We've already lost our government from the fact that we believe that, the, that, that whatever the Supreme Court says in this case is the law. As all of you know, Obama, after saying 18 times he didn't have the authority to do so, not only did he say he's not going to deport, meaning enforce immigration law against certain classes of illegal aliens, certain situations of illegal aliens, he said that he was going to give them a affirmative benefits, meaning not just a negative that he's not going to deport them, but he's going to give them social security cards and work permits, almost quasi-citizen documents, to those who pursuant to long-standing sovereignty law that every nation has are not allowed to be here. And he gave out about 800,000 of these over the course of time. Trump, it took him a long time. He's been very wishy-washy on this issue himself, but he decided to get rid of it. 
and the left sued in these lower courts to say, no, they uh, they have a right to, to be here. And of course, the courts they took it to, they will rule with the left no matter what. The law doesn't matter. It was at that moment we said that if President Trump and his administration agrees to something this absurd, it's over. That means that there's nothing a court can't do. I want, I want you to conceive the realms of possibilities as to what a lawless president could possibly do. And you'll understand this is as lawless as it gets. So picture a president saying, I don't know, these groups of citizens don't have to pay taxes. These groups of citizens get special benefits. That's pretty, pretty radical, right? Let's say a president said, you know, I think Social Security is a scam. I think younger workers are never going to see that money. I'm going to, without passing a new law in Congress, I'm going to allow younger workers to divert a percentage or all of their FICA taxes towards private accounts. Wow, that's, that's pretty unbelievable, right? Well, that is not nearly as radical as what Obama did, because at least those are American citizens who have the right to be here. What Obama did was grant citizen rights to aliens. Do you know when, I say this all the time, Hamilton, in the Federalist Papers, when he was going over, um, when he was going over the difference between a president and a king, he was trying to assuage the concerns of people that a president would be a king, he wrote that the one may confer rights and the other one may, may confer no privileges whatsoever. And he listed as an example that a king may make denizens of aliens. And certainly a president cannot do that. Well, Obama made, unilaterally made denizens of aliens. He says, you could stay here. You have the right to be here. You have the right to get work permits. Again, putting the politics and policy aside, which I want to get to in a minute, <clears throat> a few minutes, but let's just talk about the legalities here, the constitutional system of government. A president cannot unilaterally override congressional statutes. Certainly the ones dealing with foundational sovereignty that affect the whole of the people. But yet we are told not only was the president able to do that, but when the, a subsequent president, meaning even if by some radical view you think that the president, Obama, may have been able to do that, certainly a subsequent president could just rescind it. Nope. Lower courts came in and said, nope, Obama is the law of the land. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but essentially wound up doing that. And this administration, rather than just saying, you can't do that, and asserting separation of powers, begged the Supreme Court to take the case, and they're taking the case, they're hearing oral arguments today. Anything that comes out of it, if we have any indications, we'll, uh, we'll go over it tomorrow. But I'll just tell you, you would think we have five votes to overturn these crazy lower courts? But the fact that we're not 100% sure demonstrates for the 50 millionth time that we don't really have a conservative Supreme Court. But the fact that we are in this position, it means we have already lost. You know, I wrote an article on Friday, could U.S. courts make animals into humans? And it's actually, I, I think it really encapsulates this question of judicial supremacy very well. And one of the most important prescient comments came from, that came from Abraham Lincoln on this issue was during the fifth debate 
with Stephen Douglas in Galesburg, Illinois. This was October 7th, 1858. It was a massive crowd. 20,000 people turned out. I mean, that's that's what they did in those days. Politics was a spectator sport. Um, my understanding of the history was unseasonably cold that day, but um, it was also rainy. But nonetheless, they came out to, to hear the debate. And S- Stephen Douglas was trying to posit that the Dred Scott decision by Roger Taney in 1858 basically saying that blacks are chattel, their property, that that's like the law of the land. And Lincoln made the following comment that literally speaks to the most important issue of our time. It's more important today than it was when Lincoln said these words 170 years ago, 160 years ago. He said that through the acceptance of Dred Scott, quote, Douglas commits himself to the next decision whenever it comes as being as obligatory as this one, since he does not investigate it and won't inquire whether the opinion is right or wrong. He accused Douglas, he said that Douglas, quote, teaches men this doctrine and in doing so prepares the public mind to take the next decision when it comes without any inquiry. And this is my problem today. One would think and hope the Supreme Court, I mean, really, it should be nine to nothing. I don't care if you are radically pro-open borders, radically for amnesty, but that has to be done politically. No one could say that a lower court could do this unilaterally. And a, a former president, lower court could do this unilaterally. Yet by us accepting that a court has power over this, even if the highest court ultimately reverses them, we prepare ourselves for the next decision. You know, there's another case that's going to be heard today that a lot of people aren't focusing on. An illegal alien is suing Border Patrol for shooting their teenage kid who is punking around, saying they have Fifth Amendment rights on Mexican soil. It's unbelievable. The Fifth Circuit rejected it, but they're appealing to the Supreme Court. Again, you would imagine they don't have five votes for that, but they shouldn't have a single vote for that. But the fact that courts could make denizens of aliens, give aliens citizen rights, demonstrates we've already lost this. The court should have immediately, and they waited a very long time, wouldn't take the appeal. Immediately, a year and a half. I mean, this happened January 2018. It's almost two years. Two years. Aliens have illegally been able to remain in the country with work permits as a result of randomly selected lower courts. It's truly unbelievable. We've already lost the rule of law here. And the Supreme Court should have just issued a one-page memo and said, this is absurd. Illegal aliens can't get standing. There's no standing here. This violates 130 years of precedent. This is absurd. And they should issue a warning to um, rebuke these lower court judges and done. Here it's taken up. Well, uh, um, Board of Regents v. Trump, it's a legitimate case. Who's right here? Like as if it's a 50-50. I want to read to you <coughs> what, the, um, what the Supreme Court has said in 1958, built on endless case law, Leng May Ma v. Barber. Now, the court had already said since 1889 that aliens 
are considered people who come here and are not affirmatively granted permission to enter and affirmatively through the executive branch empowered by Congress, given lawful status, it's literally in its most literal sense it's as, as if um, they are standing outside of our boundaries. They are not here. You think they're here? You see a ghost. It's nothing but a ghost because really they're outside. So in Lang Mei Ma, the court took it a step further. The court previously has had occasion to define the legal status of excluded, excluded aliens on parole. Okay? Meaning those who aren't rejected outright, but they're given temporary parole while we adjudicate their status. In Kaplan v. Todd, 1925, an excluded alien was paroled to a private immigrant aid society pending deportation. The questions posed were whether the alien was dwelling in the United States within the meaning of a naturalization, naturalization statute and whether she had entered or was found in the United States for purpose of limitations. Mr. Justice Holmes, the famous Oliver Wendell Holmes, disposed of the problem by explicitly acquainting parole with detention. The appellant could not lawfully have landed in the U.S. and until she legally landed, could not have dwelt within the United States. This is Artarian v. Billings in, in, uh, a couple of years later. Moreover, while she was at Ellis Island, meaning even though she's physically there, she was to be regarded as stopped at the boundary line and kept there unless and until her right to enter should be declared. That's U.S. v. Jutoy, 1903. When her prison bounds were enlarged by committing her to the custody of the Hebrew society, the nature of her stay within the territory was not changed. She was still in theory of law at the boundary line and had gained no foothold in the United States. <clears throat> what the court was saying is that even certainly if you sneak here illegally and we catch you, it's as if you're not here, which, by the way, as I say, is the biggest thing they're missing with this birthright citizenship citizenship debate. It's physically, literally as if you are not on the soil. So even if you would read it as saying anyone who's on the soil is a citizen and they're forgetting the fact that there's a, a second qualifying clause and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, which there's endless information on what that means. But even if you ignored that part, if you are not admitted with permission, it's as if you're not here. And what the court was saying there is that even if you're temporarily paroled, but you're not affirmatively given permanent status, it's as if you're not here. So Obama illegally paroled them. But even if he had the legal authority to do that, even if he had the legal authority to do that, it's as if in the most physical sense, they are not in the country, period. They're not here. As such, they should have no standing or no college should have standing on their behalf to sue. They are not in this country. I don't care if you were brought here as a two-year-old. It doesn't matter. For the purpose of law, it might be your no, of no fault of your own, but it's certainly of no fault of the American taxpayer either. It's not our fault either. We should not have to pay for that. So that is all we need to know about this case. There's no hemming and hawing, 
you know, and, and that's what I fear. Like a lot of these guys will agree to 10 of the premises, Kavanaugh or Gorsuch or whoever, Roberts. There is no shred of legitimacy to this. So the fact that we are even debating this legally and that we agree that the courts have the sole and final arbiter status of this issue demonstrates that we have lost our system of government that Coolidge spoke about, the system for which our soldiers fight for, that we give tribute to on Veterans Day. We don't have three branches of government. We have one branch of government. Including when that branch of government itself has said for years that it has absolutely no authority to get involved in questions of immigration and that illegal aliens are as if they are physically not present in the country, even if temporarily paroled. So that's with that. That is the legal part of this. Now the political part. Forget about, so, so let's assume you would hope and think the most likely outcome is the Supreme Court 5 to 4. It should be 9 to nothing. 5 to 4 says, of course, Trump could get rid of this. Then what? 90% of Republicans, including Trump himself, want to just give it to them anyway and codify it in statute, which you could do if you want. Let's talk about the politics. So we're told that these people are somehow all of these the greatest people alive. Now, those of you who have listened to this show for years know that it's not, the, for the most part, the 80-year-old illegal aliens that are committing all the crime and doing all the drunk driving. It's the late teens, 20s. In other words, the people, the dreamers. I never understood this business that somehow the young illegal aliens are somehow better. No, if anything, they're worse. But um, Trump tweets out today. We'll put this tweet here on the screen here. I just don't get it. Help me, help me make sense of this tweet many of the people in daca no longer very young are far are far from angels okay so i agree with that finally usually he says they're great people now at least he's on message some are very tough hardened criminals okay president obama said he had no legal right to sign order but would anyway okay but then he ends it off if supreme court remedies with overturn a deal will be made with dems for them to stay huh so in the past, he said, they're great people. I want them to stay. Well, that made sense. That was coherent, but I disagreed with it. Now he's saying there, there's a lot of them that are horrible, but I'm going to make a deal with them to stay. Look, I understand if you want to negotiate hard and say, look, hey, Democrats, if you want to codify 680,000 of these guys to get amnesty, here's what I want from you. Codifying against birthright citizenship, ending chain migration, the whole litany of you know, sanctuary cities, we're all theoretically open to dealing with that. But you got to approach it from a position of strength. As, as Trump said in the art of the deal, you can never show your opponent that you're desperate to make a deal. And the problem is Trump for the last three years has been saying, yeah, we really need to allow these people to stay. Well, once the other side knows that you badly agree to their premise and are willing to give them what they want before a lateral commitment from their side to show any inkling of giving you what you want, you lost the deal. So I don't get what Trump is doing there. But there's a broader thing we need to remember here, and we're going to commemorate on this day of oral arguments about DACA. DACA single-handedly spawned qualitatively the worst illegal migration in American history. When Obama did this in 2012, 
He put out a philosophy to the world. It wasn't just an illegal act. It was an illegal act that came with a philosophy. And it said the following, that if you come here as a child in some form, we will never enforce our immigration laws. So what happened? Beginning in 2014, the, the Mexican migration, which was slowing, it gave way to Central American migration, where we had probably since 2014, several million Central Americans come here, often teenagers being self-smuggled in because they knew that we wouldn't enforce the laws against children. And as you well know, the rest is history because that led to the worst drug crisis that began when? In 2014. It led to the worst gang crisis we had because the young punks from Central America were the ones who fueled this. So a lot of people forget. I know they're going to say right now the ones getting DACA are the ones from before. But by doing that, what that did was that spawned an endless wave of Central American teens. And let me tell you something. When you look at the terrible homicide rates in Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador, and you go in and you bring hundreds of thousands of young males from those countries here, well, what the heck do you think you're bringing in? I mean, they're not all going to be that way, but a heck of a lot of them will be. And that's where we are today. That's the lawlessness we have. Let's go over this. The El Paso Intelligence Center drafted a memo in 2014 asserting that 95% of the border crossers interviewed cited the promise of amnesty as the primary factor behind their migration. The, the Miami Herald reported at the time, quote, children are also being sent by families who believe they could qualify for immigration reform if Congress ever acted on it or for President Obama's 2012 Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival Program known as DACA. On June 13, 2014, the Washington Post um, recognized the problem of the unaccompanied alien children and admitted that the surge of tens of thousands of Central Americans was, quote, driven in large part by the perception they will be allowed to stay under, Obama's administra under the Obama administration's immigration policies. On June 4, 2014, the New York Times reported that, quote, the shift in the way the United States treats minors illegal alien minors, prompted and inspired parents to either hire so-called coyotes to bring them north or to make the trip with toddlers in tow, something rarely seen before in this region. This is what everyone's forgetting. They, view, they, they look at, at, at the needs, wants, and desires of these illegal aliens who were brought here younger in, in a vacuum. What about the, the needs and desires of the American citizen? What about the consequence of this? And it's not like we never did this before. There's one thing, if we have a little bit of illegal immigration, we're like, look, it's a few thousand people. They were brought as children. Okay, let's just deal with it. No, that's what we did in 1986 when we granted amnesty to 2.7 million. And then we didn't enforce the laws. And we had five smaller amnesties we gave throughout the 90s. And again and again and again. Isn't it time to first enforce our laws on the books, at the border, in the interior, and then we'll talk about what to do with these children, so-called children who aren't children anymore. 
It's that simple. But by doing this again and again and again, without enforcing our laws, it's going to bring more misery on both sides of the border and encourage more of this. It's amazing after vividly watching a year's worth of the worst migration from Central America spawned by this notion that if you come with a child, we won't enforce the laws that we're still even talking about doing this. But I'm just telling you, putting the legalities aside, almost every Republican agrees with the Democrats. We owe it to them. Not that we owe it to the American people to root out sanctuary cities and to root out criminal aliens and to finally, finally fulfill the promise codified into current law of achieving 100% operational control over the border, building a border wall, which is current law, having an exit entry visa tracking system, which is current law, enforcing expedited removal, which is current law, passed unanimously by the Senate in 1996, signed by President Bill Clinton. And um, anyway, what, what, what did this wave do? This wave brought on by DACA, Washington Post admitted, the gang's growth has been fueled by a wave of hundreds of thousands of teens who traveled to the United States alone to escape poverty and gang violence in Central America. Nearly 5,000 of those unaccompanied minors have arrived in Prince George's County, Maryland, since 2012. Geraldine Hart, the police commissioner of Suffolk County, New York, said that the entirety of MS-13 crisis in Long Island is because of the UACs, that Long Island had it bad because, quote, it was the largest, largest recipient of, of unaccompanied alien children in the nation. All brought on by DACA. Acting Assistant Attorney General John Cronin said that there are 2,000 MS-13 members in Long Island and they are, quote, continually being refilled with new emissaries from El Salvador. Former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, everyone knows him, he was a former U.S. attorney in Maryland, which is hard hit by MS-13. He said that the MS-13 activity in the D.C. area is, quote, fueled by illegal immigration and particularly by the challenge of unaccompanied minor children. There you go. There is your compassion, folks. There is your compassion right there. So that's what we have on display here. And by the way, speaking of which, Congress won't deal with this. I mean, I'm, again, I'm telling you, were the Supreme Court to go ahead and allow Trump to be able to, uh, you know, allow him to actually enforce the law, which again is, is just absurd. It's just absurd. I, I just want to point out, Madison once said, if the constitutional boundary of either be brought into question, I do not see that any one of these independent departments has more right than another to declare their sentiments on that point. But let's just say that happens. Almost every Republican, every administration official, including Trump, will say, we really need a, we have an emergency to, to help the dreamers. Where's the emergency to deal with the following? WJLA, Rockville, Maryland. Montgomery County releases accused child molester on bond despite immigration detainer. The press office for Montgomery County Executive Mark Elrich claims jail staff followed protocol when they released an undocumented immigrant accused of child sex abuse despite an immigration detainer on file. 
The case, which ABC7 first reported Friday, follows months of mounting tension between ICE and the politically left-leaning county of 1.1 million residents. On Tuesday, Luis Freddy Hernandez Morales, 48, of West Springfield, Virginia, was booked at the Montgomery County Detention Center in Rockville on a charge of sex abuse of a minor. That same day, ICE lodged an immigration detainer against the Guatemalan national who is living in the U.S. illegally. <clears throat> um, on Wednesday, Montgomery County Court Judge Marina Sabet issued Hernandez Morales a $20,000 bond, but he only had to pay 10%. Within hours, he managed to obtain 2000 required to be set free. There you go. There you go. Um, according to charging documents, Hernandez Morales molested his 11-year-old granddaughter on multiple occasions at home. Um, in one instance, the victim awoke to Hernandez Morales kissing her in bed. With, uh, I'm not even, you know, whatever. You, 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 could, you could look up this article. I'm not going to sit and read that here, but it's pretty horrific. Um, again, I want to tie together the lawlessness of believing in judicial supremacy and believing a former president could unilaterally make denizens of aliens, the lawlessness of sanctuary cities, but also the lawlessness of these jailbreak policies called criminal justice reform that is taking root and is supported by both parties, including President Trump. And I'm sorry to beat up on him today, but the guy needs to be consistent. And anyway... Some of you might have jumped out of your seat when I read this WJLA article. So everyone's talking about the news that despite ICE being caught with their, um, I mean, sorry, uh, Montgomery County Executive Elrich being caught with his pants down, letting out uh, his favorite uh, illegal alien child molesters. There's been about 10 of them that we know of. And he promised to work with ICE. And then he lets out another one even after his promise. So that's the big news. But if you notice embedded in that article is another important piece of news. Let's forget about immigration for a minute. Let's just, let's just treat the guy like an American because after all, the courts tell us there are no borders, right? You know, 7.8 billion people in the world are potential Americans. So everyone's an American. Let's just treat this guy like an American. How in the living hell does a guy arrested on for child molesting charges, and it's pretty horrific if you read the charging documents, how is he able to be let go with $2,000? We've, we've talked in, in very much in depth over the last number of months and weeks about this growing trend, basically abolishing bail, setting bail very low, and people say, oh, well, Daniel, it's for low-level criminals. No. They are letting go even the worst child molesters, in this case, an illegal alien child molester, on 2,000 bond. Again, as Calvin Coolidge said here, if our own country is to be given over to violence and crime, what are we fighting for? What are we celebrating our veterans for? What are we fighting overseas for if our country at home is a cesspool? This is the an anarchy we've succumbed to. And you know what? You know where Trump got convinced to pass jailbreak from Jared Kushner. Do you know who Jared Kushner used? Kim, Karda Kim Kardashian's rear end. The very sagacious, thoughtful, studious advice of Kim Kardashian, real expert on the law and um, criminal justice. I'm sure she's spent the time we have studying this issue. Kim Kardashian is out there. This is an article at the Daily Wire we will um, link to. 
celebrities pushed to save death row inmate Rodney Reed. But what does the evidence say? Basically, Kim Kardashian is now pushing to stay the execution of this guy, Stacey Stites, who was convicted. Um, um, no, I'm sorry. Um, whoops. Rodney Reed, who was convicted of um, raping and murdering a 19-year-old girl in Texas, Stacey Stites, 23 years ago. 23 years, the guy is still around. That's a whole other thing. That's why we have no deterrent in the death penalty, because even the few times we use it, it's after at least 23 years. In 1980, the average time was about five years. That's a whole other story. We, we once did a show on that. But that's the thing. It, it, it's one case of anarchy after another. Another article, Marina Medvin at townhall.com, U.S. courts treat illegal immigrants better than American citizens. And they note, as much as bail is being abolished, still, some Americans do have to post bail. These people are paroled. They come to our border. They're paroled in. They don't show up for their uh, hearing. We never, we never enforce the law on them. Illegal aliens are being treated than better than Americans now. Somehow the law doesn't apply. Somehow there's this business that if you break the law, if the parents are at fault, somehow the kids... We don't apply that to Americans. But illegal aliens are better than everyone. This is where we are today, folks. But anyway, I want to I wanna read to you some data on DACA um, that I compiled last year with the help of Congressman Steve King's office. You know, they're talking about how these are just the best human beings alive. <laughs> And Trump did put out that some of them are criminals, and, and, and they're like, what are you talking about, Daniel? So the bigger story is the government, meaning lawlessness begets lawlessness. If Obama makes up a program without statute and then makes up criterion, well, you have to complete a degree, you have to not be a criminal, the whole thing is lawless. So once he creates a lawless program, do you really think he's going to fulfill his conditions? They only tracked, they only had data on 87,076 applicants. That's roughly 10% of their criminal record. 3,507 had self-reported as having a criminal record. Yet, they were given status. They were approved. What else do we have here? According to USCIS, 59,786, that's almost 10% of DACA recipients have been arrested while in the U.S. Remember, all the drunk driving. By the way, and a whole other thing is, these are felonies. Remember, misdemeanors, you're exempt from misdemeanors. Now, misdemeanors could be minor things, but they could be serious things, too. Drunk driving is a devastating crime, very ubiquitous among the young dreamer illegal alien population, as we've documented here ad nauseum. And it's a habitual crime, meaning if you're prone to doing that once, you're going to be doing that regularly, and, and you're going to be putting people in grave danger. Some of those arrests included assault, rape, drug charges, and even murder. All valedictorians, right? Not really. 
So DACA recipients were required to either be currently attending school or if older, have a high school diploma or a GED. Turns out that for a whopping 69%, the USCIS doesn't even have data on their education status. Of the remaining pool of the ones that we do have information on, only 15.4% of the the 30% that we have information on (laughs) have a high school diploma or GED, and only 13.3% have up to one year in college. Only 235 individuals, just 0.1% have an associate's degree, and just 246 have a bachelor's degree. Just 16 individuals have advanced degrees. By the way, it says on the on the DACA application, there's a box to check off if you have an interpreter. See, we were told these kids were brought here as young kids. They know no uh, a country other their own. They don't know a language other their own. They're more American than you, Daniel. Well, then why do they need an interpreter? Another interesting thing here, by the way, is that um, th- tens of thousands of them went home to cleanse their status and come back, and Obama gave them what's called advanced parole, which allowed them to then apply for a green card. It, like, cleansed their status, meaning normally you wouldn't be allowed to do that, but Obama allowed them to come back and jump the line um, ahead of everyone as if they already had pending applications, but the pending application was only based on their illegal status, which would have barred them. So he made them as if they're coming in new legally, erasing their illegal status, but then they also got to cut the line. What country do you have to go back to? I thought you didn't know other any other country other than, than America. Anyway, that's where we are now. This is the big lie about DACA. But it all gets back to the courts. Everyone gets standing. Mexicans could throw rocks at Border Patrol agents on, on their soil. You know, agents will protect themselves. They get killed. And they sue us saying they have Fifth Amendment rights. And It's unbelievable. Illegal aliens have standing to sue us. But we don't have standing to sue sanctuary cities for violating the law. Just, just today, you know, there was this lawsuit in federal court where basically... The state of Connecticut is suing Remington gun manufacturers for criminals. You know, this is funny. Remember, we spoke about the fact that these blue cities are full of them. We'll talk about this more tomorrow with San Francisco electing this nutcase, Chesa Bodine, as the district attorney. This guy is a son of the weather underground terrorists. His parents committed a robbery in 1970 that resulted in the death of two NYPD cops. This guy, this kid, who's now grown up as a public defender, uh, defending rapists and murderers, was brought up by Nick Ayers and Bernadine Dorn. He was just elected DA. He said he's going to prosecute ICE and police officers for enforcing the law. An utter animal was elected as DA in San Francisco. The drugs, the theft. Now there's tons of new articles on that. We warned about this. Now it's public knowledge in the entire California as a result of following the lead or, or plowing the lead, trailblazing, Criminal justice reform. Homelessness. Everything there you have. Because they don't enforce immigration law, theft laws, drug laws, and public order. We're going to have an article out on that today. I'll link to in show notes. But anyway, rather than taking the blame for it, these very cities, we said the courts, including John Roberts, said they're allowed to now sue 
banks. It's the bank's fault for mortgages, for turning the cities into a cesspool. Not their crime and immigration policies and their drug policies, no. But now another thing. All these criminals that are let go under jailbreak that can now go and indiscriminately murder anyone, guess what? Rather than giving citizens the right to sue them for their stupid jailbreak policies, letting these dirtbags out of jail, guess what? Now the states get to sue uh, gun companies, gun manufacturers, for, for all these problems. Let the criminals out of jail sue the guns. We have a domestic Sodom and Gomorrah. We have crime and violence in our cities. We have drugs and homelessness in our cities. We have illegal aliens and criminal alien drug trafficking networks in our cities. We have our border as a cesspool. We have our laws not being enforced. We have courts being empowered as the sole and final arbiter to vitiate laws. And we have less than 1% of Americans shouldering the burden to fight for us, mainly in battles that really don't affect us overseas while leaving our border wide open. This is the nightmare scenario that President Coolidge worried about, that we would no longer have a country worthy of the sacrifice of our troops. That's our job. Our job here is to rectify these things, is to create a republic or restore our republic built on sovereignty, security, a civil society, a stable system of government, a lot of S's there. Sovereignty, security, society, system. Those are the four big things we always talk about here. So that we one day will, once again, have a country that is worthy of the tremendous sacrifice of our military and our soldiers that give so much and their families to go overseas, defend our prerogatives to the best of their ability. But the anarchy, both on the streets and in our system of government, needs to end. Send me your questions, comments, and concerns at dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Thanks for bearing with me with my uh, congested uh, nose and voice today. Um, hopefully, it will get better this week. Send this show to 20 to 50 of your best friends and relatives. Let's spread the word. Let's take this to the next level. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.